few places on Earth are as ancient and mysterious as Europe's frozen north. In these barren, windswept lands within the Arctic Circle, the ground is buried beneath ice and snow for a vast majority of the year. Temperatures are often frigid, and while the sun is out all the time in the summer, it disappears completely in the winter months, leaving the region shrouded in perpetual darkness. As you could imagine, life here is far from easy, but believe it or not, it's home to one of Europe's oldest indigenous cultures, and has been since time immemorial. Known as the Sami, these ancient communities have often been misunderstood by those around them, and have been pushed to the fringes of society because of their language, customs, and culture. Just who are these peoples who call the Arctic Circle home? What sets them apart from their northern European neighbors? And how are they finally receiving the respect and recognition they deserve? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Though the Sami people are traditionally associated with the far north of four European countries, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and the Kola Peninsula of northwest Russia, a region collectively known in their language as Sapmi, their origins place them somewhere decidedly further away from there. As with other languages in the Uralic family, of which the nine remaining Sami languages belong, both the Sami people and their native tongues are believed to have originated along the Volga River, particularly the middle and upper parts, in central Russia. Descended from the eastern leg of the ancient corded ware culture that called Europe home between 2900 BC and 2350 BC, these ancestors of the Sami began migrating northwest sometime in the second millennium BC, finally reaching what's now Finland in around 1600 BC. There they encountered other ancient peoples whose languages they ultimately absorbed into their own. Over time, they came to encompass their ancestral homelands, the region geographically known as Fenoscandia in the far north of the aforementioned four countries. What did Sami society and culture look like? While they now live with all the modern comforts and amenities as everyone else, there are elements of their traditions that have remained little unchanged for millennia. For the most part, in the early days, the Sami were traditionally reindeer herders. Sometime in the early days of their long and vast history, they were able to successfully domesticate reindeer, the preferred pack animal and beast of burden in the Arctic North. As such, these docile animals were used for transportation, and were even cultivated for their meat, milk, and skin, the pelts of which were used to build their homes, semi-portable tent-like structures that could be refolded and carried from place to place. Today, only about 20% of the total Sami population still herd reindeer, but the governments of Norway, Sweden, and Finland in which they live now reserve such practices exclusively for them. One question that's so often asked is if Sami societies were traditionally matriarchal or patriarchal. The answer is that men and women served equally within a given Sami community. The wife-slash-mother who oversaw domestic matters was seen as equally important to the role of hunter-slash-breadwinner that the husband-slash-father typically served. But unlike other societies of the time, both genders played important roles in religious ceremonies. While the priests and shamans, typically male, of the original Sami faith, an animistic religion that worshipped nature in all its glory and splendor, were allowed to travel the thin veil between the land of the living and the spirit realm, women played an integral part in getting them there. Ceremonial drums were often beaten to put the priest into a deep trance. Women, as well as men, were responsible for this practice, leading the chants and blessings that would allow the priest to cross over to the proverbial other side. As such, the drum was a sacred and important instrument in the Sami religion. Several can still be seen within their communities as well as in museums, often depicting mythological scenes, those from nature, or gods and other deities. For several centuries, the Sami lived and thrived in a semi-nomadic existence in Europe's Arctic Circle. But this didn't last long. No sooner had they settled into their ancestral homelands in Sapmi did another people come to settle in the far south of what's now Norway and Sweden. 
Unlike the Sami, these people came from somewhere else entirely, and spoke wholly different languages than those of the Uralic family. With Central Asian origins some 6,000 years ago, they came to inhabit every corner of the European continent over the ensuing centuries. These hardy, robust people were known as Indo-Europeans, and genetic records trace their ancestry to present-day southern Russia and the Stan countries. So it was that about 3,000 BC, the first Indo-Europeans arrived in Scandinavia. Contact between the Sami and these newcomers was kept at a minimum for many years, not so much for lack of interest between the two cultures, inasmuch as the physical distance between them was quite vast. As the Scandinavians built up their respective societies in the south of such countries as Norway and Sweden, the Sami thrived in the Arctic North. When such interactions did occur, as chronicled by the Norse in their histories and mythic sagas, they were largely peaceful. They traded with one another, with the Sami exchanging fish, skis, and hides for Scandinavian iron and woodworks. Such lucrative trade lasted, albeit infrequently, well into the 18th and 19th centuries, when rapid industrialization brought the kingdoms of Norway and Sweden roaring into the modern age. It was at this time, too, that the troubles between the Sami and their neighbors began. With modernization came expansion and the desire for natural resources. As such, the governments of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Russia began looking to the quote-unquote wilds of the north for timber, as well as water and open space. So it was that, little by little, these governments began encroaching into Sápmi, forcing the Sami into smaller and more restrictive areas as their natural surroundings fell to greed. As if this wasn't bad enough, these various governments enacted forced assimilation programs on the indigenous Sami populations. Such programs single-handedly converted the animistic and shamanistic Sami peoples to Christianity, and also attempted to quote-unquote civilize them to modern European standards by doing away with their native languages and customs, and forcing them to speak the dominant language, which in these cases were either Norwegian, Swedish, Finnish, or Russian. All the Sami could do was participate against their will, and watch in horror as the natural resources that they'd respectfully cultivated for centuries fell to the point of near depletion at the hands of their neighbors. But the 20th century saw even more laws and practices put in place in an attempt to eradicate the Sami. Between 1913 and 1920, a Swedish-based race research program was encouraged to move to the country's Arctic north and steal samples from living people as well as gravesites to study and classify the Sami's origins. Of course, such practices now are seen as highly unethical, barbaric, and inhumane, but were completely acceptable at the time. As to be expected, the research group's findings revealed them to be nothing less than subhuman. Over a 40-year period between 1900 and 1940, the Norwegian government launched an even more intense campaign to wipe out their Sami populations. In doing so, they encouraged Norwegian settlers to relocate to the north, with incentives of land and access to its bevy of natural resources, which included oil reserves, natural gas, and precious metals. This forced the Sami off their ancestral homelands and displaced them for several generations. The outbreak of World War II did little to fix the problem, with the invading Nazis carrying out their scorched earth campaign following their usurping of the region's resources, leading to deforestation, the demolition of many Sami settlements, and a purging of their populations. After the devastation of the war, the Sami began fighting for their rights with a renewed vigor and intensity. Fearing that their culture and way of life were at stake, they fought back, particularly in 1979 when the government of Norway expressed interest in building a hydroelectric power station in the Finnmark region of the country's far north, one of the Sami's ancestral homelands. For the first time in Norway's history, Sami rights were brought front and center of the political agenda. The 1980s saw even more activism on the part of these indigenous people, with the advent of a national anthem, Sami Sogalavla, or Song of the Sami Family, the adoption of the Sami flag, and the first Sami parliament convening in Norway in 1989. 
Finally, in 2005, their efforts bore partial fruit at last when the Norwegian Parliament rewarded both the Sami Parliament and the Finnmark Provincial Council joint responsibility of administering those lands of the region formerly considered state property. This proved a major victory for the Sami in that, for the first time in recent history, they were once again given control of their traditional stomping grounds with a whopping 96% of the provincial area returned to them and the Norwegian people. Today, the Sami live primarily in cities throughout Norway, Sweden, and parts of Finland and northwest Russia, though there's still a considerable figure that call the Sapmi region of the Arctic Circle home. Due to years of cultural suppression, including forced removal from their homeland and adoption of the dominant languages in their respective countries, they still face a crisis in regards to their traditional way of life and customs. Luckily, however, renewed interest in their culture, especially from outsiders, has brought the Sami front and center for researchers and linguists alike. Several books have been written about them, including a magnificent collection of their lore and folk tales called By the Fire by Emilia de Mont-Hat. As the world discovers more about this rich and unique people, one can only hope that their culture, language, and traditions will be upheld and maintained for generations to come. Thank you for listening. I apologize for skipping last week, but, as it turned out after two years of evading it, the dreaded coronavirus finally caught up with me. But I'm glad to report I'm doing much better now. To all my listeners, I encourage you to be safe out there, as this is definitely not something that should be taken lightly. Just tread cautiously and you'll be fine. That being said, I'm glad to be back this week with an episode about one of Europe's oldest indigenous cultures. I do so hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like what you heard and wish to support me, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join me again next week for another brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.